So hello, I'm Dr. Gay Carlson, president of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry with, I think it's number 34 of my screenside chats for our ACAP members. My goal with the chats <clears throat> is to share timely clinical practice and other important information from experts on key topics during the COVID-19 pandemic. Reminiscent of President Roosevelt's fireside chats during the Great Depression and World War II, I have wanted the topics to be informative, relevant, and interesting. As we near the end of my presidency, I'd like to continue on the theme of my initiative, Dysregulated Children, or children with severe emotional outbursts who pose real treatment challenges. Last time we spoke to Dr. Manpreet Singh about what to make of the term childhood bipolar disorder, which some have argued is what afflicts children with outbursts. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Jack McClellan, who's president, of, uh, president, who's professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences. You'd love to be president, right? I would, yeah, I'd probably screw things up. <laughs> okay, anyway, who's professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the University of Washington and the medical director of child study treatment center at the state hospital for kids in Washington state. Um, he manages the sickest of the sick kids, I think, for places that don't have state hospitals. You might not even know how they function, but I know in New York State, the kids that nobody else can manage goes to the state hospital. And so Jack has those kids. However, he's at least allowed the time to actually help the kids. So he's a really good person to talk to about the subject. His research is focused on diagnosis and treatment of early psychotic disorders and the genetics of schizophrenia. Um, he was the lead author for ACAP's practice parameters back when we had them for the topics of bipolar disorder and schizophrenia and currently serves on my task force addressing outbursts and emotion dysregulation. So Jack, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Gay. Um, so before we get into outbursts, what has been your experience with finding bona fide cases of mania in kids, not spectrum, not prodrome, not depression that subsequently develops into mania, but I mean real stark raving mad mania in children versus adolescents. I don't doubt you see them in adolescents. Have you seen that much in kids? No, it's unbelievably rare. That uh, So we have a, a children's unit for kids under the age of 12, uh, and all the kids there, as you say, are some of the sickest in the States. They all have problems with regulating their moods and anger and uh, rage outbursts. None of them really present with classic mania. And at least in the kids that we know with follow-up, none of them go on to develop classic mania. They certainly have lots of problems over time, but not manic depressive illness as it's at least traditionally been defined. Right. I have to say that's been my experience too. And I have a feeling that because we've been on inpatient units and can watch the kids longitudinally, both within the context of you see them day to day on the unit, as well as you, you follow them subsequently, it may give us a somewhat different perspective from the people who uh, listen to a parent relate a story or who do a structured interview. I, I really do think that that uh, down and dirty perspective may change your mind. So how do you think mania got us to outbursts? I mean, I think, Partly the definition of mania changed and it filled this void in child psychiatry that there's all these kids that have difficulty with outbursts, rage reactions, they can't regulate their moods very well, all of which is transdiagnostic. It doesn't fit neatly with any one category. So the, the diagnoses of ADHD or oppositional defiant disorder or mood and anxiety disorders just don't neatly capture those categories. They're the most difficult and challenging kids in the clinic. And so people were really looking for someplace to fill that void 
and they landed on mania. I think it also offered this promise that, well, if they really have mania, then we know how to treat it. There's really well-established treatments in adults. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, those it, it's just not the same syndrome. It's a different presentation. It's not that the meds never help calm the kids down, but it's not the same thing as treating an adult with magnet depressive illness with lithium. They, you don't get that kind of response. Yeah. Well, so I, I, I agree with you. I think it, it filled a need and it was a, it, you know, it would have been great. Oh my God, look at that. We, we actually have, we actually know what's wrong and, and we know what we can do about this. Um, so um, I think it really was, uh, there was some hope there, um, but um, at least, at least as mania is defined in adults, it's not the same thing. So how much of a problem or outbursts um, on your unit in, in terms of what you've been struggling with for your adult life. Um, but what kind of problems do kids with outbursts pose for you? I mean, it's clear that even though the kids all come in with generally different diagnoses or some collection of diagnoses, outbursts are the number one reason why kids get referred to my state hospital. Uh, they're destructive. They're angry. Uh, they have a great deal of difficulty negotiating conflicts or solving problems. And self-harm is sort of mixed in with all this, that the kids that, also, that act out or, or hit or scream or rage also often hurt themselves as well. And, uh, and aggression, self-harm, and rage outbursts are, are, again, the primary reason why kids don't do well in community treatment settings and why they get referred to us. And it's kind of true across all the age groups, from the little kids to the adolescents. So um, have you found anything, you know, that, that as we've been struggling with this with the initiative, what do you think have been the things that have been most helpful in terms of your managing the kids? Are there, are there kids that you get sometimes that are a slam dunk and you hit yourself, oh, geez, you know, why did those idiots not figure this out? Or do they end up being real problems as far as even you're being able to manage them? I mean, the advantage you mentioned early on, that so my little state hospital, we have the luxury of, of having a very long length of stay. Kids stay on average nine to 12 months, which gives us treatment opportunities that most people just don't have. And so uh, that over time, we've developed this milieu ther therapeutic milieu strategy based on evidence-based treatments, where the goal is really to understand what the function of the behaviors are and then use evidence-based treatments to teach the kids new skills that are more adaptive. That almost all the kids, in addition to the rage outbursts, have huge trauma histories. They come from chaotic backgrounds. And to some degree, some of these behaviors have either been learned or reinforced over time. And if you're growing up in chaos or unsafe situations, some of these behaviors actually are can help rescue you or at least keep you out of trouble or, or try to get your needs met when there's no other way to do that. But they're obviously not functional in the real world. And so trying to teach the kids better skills about how to get their needs met is the main goal. Uh, frankly, we don't, we've not had great success as far as medicine suddenly fixing the problem. We certainly use medicines mostly to treat whatever the underlying disorder is. We rarely use PRNs. The goal is not to teach the kid to ask to take a substance every time they feel upset. Uh, it's really to get them to help practice how to better, you know, manage their needs. Their, their needs are perfectly appropriate. The issue is how to get those needs met without hurting themselves or hurting someone else. Yeah. We used to, you, you mentioned the M word, the milieu. When, um, when I first started in child psychiatry, back when God was in knee pants, um, that really was a huge focus, the milieu. And it was supposed to be a corrective emotional experience. And, you know, the, we spent endless amounts of time 
talking about milieu dynamics and one thing or another, but one of the things that was important in all of that was that if mama ain't happy, ain't no one happy. And so the staff really needs to work well together. The staff needs to work with, you know, the doctors and the nurses need to be collaborative. The nurses have to get along with nursing administration. Um, We had, we still do have an an inpatient school, which had a totally different um, uh, structure. I mean, they're they belong to New York State Ed. They don't even belong to the hospital. So they're foreigners on the unit. And so we have to be able to manage with them because they're the ones that are with the kids six hours a day. So it really is important to orchestrate that unit so that that there's a strong, well, this is what I found, and you can disagree with me if you want, if you dare. Um, and um, it, it, it does need a structure. They're, they're, the kids need to have expectations. The staff needs to have expectations that, that there needs to be some level of um, everybody knows what their parts are supposed to be and they should be doing them. And, and that milieu piece is in some ways itself a corrective emotional experience, just because that isn't the kinds of environments the kids come from. So I don't know. Have you found that with your uh, with your adolescent unit? Well, with all, with both the children's and the adolescent unit, yeah, there's no doubt. The milieu is the most therapeutic part of what we do. It's it's the biggest dose of what the kids get. They're in the milieu all the time. The staff are the ones who mostly uh, interact with the kids. I mean, the therapists certainly come and go and do their family work or their individual work, but most of the hours of the day are either spent in school or interacting with the staff. So we basically use the model of dialectical behavior therapy that the staff get trained in it, the school staff get trained in it, even our recreational staff, we have something called DBT soccer, where in the middle of a soccer game, they'll stop the game and work on a DBT skill because someone is upset over not scoring a goal or not getting a pass. And so having those common themes across, you know, having a common language helps a lot. And the staff, frankly, like it. That one that I think one of the challenges and, and the tricks for running these kind of places, you have to not only give the kids tools, you have to give the staff tools. The kids are really difficult. They're doing stuff they're not supposed to. They're scary. And so the staff need to know what to do in situations and working on skills and having tools to use is an important part of it. Uh, we also use a lot of motivational interviewing, which has been great, partly to help motivate the kids, but the staff also use it on each other as far as to, you know, to help things work better. So how does that sound? <clears throat> to get, can, can you think of an example off the top of your head of... Uh of an instance where something like that might be used? I mean, so for the motivational, I mean, partly so for Dear Man. Uh, So Dear Man's a DBT skill where you teach people how to negotiate better to get their needs met. And I have this clear memory when we first started doing this, there was a kid who would write me notes because he wanted to go on pass and he would swear and say, you know, you better let me go on a pass or I'll blank, blank, blank you. Mm -hmm. And we started teaching Dear Man skills. And all of a sudden I got this note from him said, Dear Dr. Jack. I think going on a pass would be very helpful and it would help me work on my skills. P.S. I still think you're an a-hole, but. (laughs) So, uh, and, you know, and and helping the staff understand that kind of stuff as well. It's really sort of self-effectiveness. You know, how can you be more effective in getting your needs met and negotiating with other people? Those are useful skills for everybody. Well, and they're also reinforcing because when he, um, if you're able to follow through on it, when he has or she has a meltdown and, and acts inappropriately, the pass is not forthcoming. Whereas even if uh, you get a little bit of an invective thrown in there, if it's done appropriately. So um, let's talk a bit about um, 
and you and I have bounced this around, so I'm, I'm hopefully not putting you into a corner. The, the skills don't come easily. There, there's a lot of practice, a lot of failure, a lot of uh, stuff that goes on before you know we finally get there. It's not. It's like teaching me how to do push-ups. I am not athletic, and it took me a long time before I was able to do push-ups to any great extent. So, it's it's a um, it's a rehab model almost more than a um, acute care model. What do you do with the kids when they're really out of control? When they're screaming, yelling, kicking, you know, throwing things? Do you evacuate the unit? Does everybody go into their own, you know, places and you wait till the kid calms down? Do you move, remove the kid? Um, you know, do you have a cold bath? When we were on the mania unit many, many years ago, we used to, we couldn't medicate the patients because it would ruin all the lab stuff that we were doing. And so they actually got cold packs up. I mean, that's interesting, right? Anyway, yeah. what, what do you, what do you do about the kids that are really blowing up? I mean, the staff obviously get a lot of training in various steps that you do. I mean, the first step is to redirect or, or you know, use basic verbal de-escalation skills. Although we also focus a lot on not continuing to engage the kid in some sort of verbal ping pong back and forth. Uh, and that our main intervention if the kid is really out of control is to use seclusion, that we don't use mechanical restraints. Uh, we really try not to use PRNs. We don't give kids shots unless they have a psychotic disorder and we're trying to get them, you know, on antipsychotic. But for the most part, uh, if we can't uh, redirect the kid, if we can't uh, you know, help them negotiate better, they, they'll go into seclusion. And at that point, it's much easier to not reinforce the behavior, to sort of ignore until they calm down. And then the goal is to, once they calm down, then they're sort of immediately re-engage with the kid to debrief with them and to help them problem solve about what to do. Afterwards, the programs use chain analyses where the kid and then is expected to kind of go over what were the sequence of events that led them to becoming escalated and what could they have done differently to avoid that outcome. So um, I think it's an important thing to, to talk about with the seclusion business. You're not using seclusion as a punishment. You're using it because you want to be able to disengage with the child, well, the teen, until that person is has got their prefrontal cortex back engaged and, and you're not just getting a lot of roaring and screaming and so forth and so on. It is, do I understand? Yes, no, exactly. I mean, just like we teach parents, and, and I'm not trying to equate seclusion with timeout. It's obviously more severe intervention than that. But the goal when someone is escalated is not to further escalate them, it's to get them to a safe place where they can calm down and then re-engage them in, in whatever problem solving that you want to do. And seclusion uh, is much less reinforcing than holding on to the kid. It's much less reinforcing than sitting back and forth just arguing with them constantly. Frankly, it's much less, engage, uh, it's much less reinforcing than negotiating with them to take a medicine where you're sort of begging them to take something to calm down. The, the goal is not to encourage them to be upset, mm -hmm. it's to help them calm down. Right. Well, you know, I published a paper in JCAP a year or two ago now where we actually found that when we were forced to discontinue the um, behavior plan that we had, that's exactly what we saw. We saw a huge increase in um, the uh, noxious behaviors that the kids were doing. I mean, they got the message really quick. You can get what you want. Just scream and yell long enough. And their staff are scared. They're scared. They can't do anything about it. You can get whatever you want. And so that was the um, that was the sort of zeitgeist that you got from the kids. And they were absolutely right. 
fix it. And I, I guess my own personal view is, is that's one of the reasons that we've had inpatient units close because it really is um, not therapeutic for the staff to get assaulted. It is not therapeutic for kids to think they can assault people, especially adults. Um, and so it really has been a lose-lose situation. But, but if you're a regulatory agency and you come and look, you'll say, oh, look, the seclusions and restraints have really gone down. Well, the seclusions have gone down. The seclusions have really gone down. And so it becomes important then what the outcome measure is for, for how you're going to be successful. So what do you, how, what would you, what do you use for outcome measures, Jack? How can you, how can you tell whether what you're doing is being effective? Uh, I mean, typically, and I agree exactly with what you're saying. And what we'll often see is that when kids first come in, they've been in other systems that in fact have inadvertently reinforced the behavior. And we're frankly honest with the kid. Those are not behaviors we're going to encourage. This is what we're going to do. So this is what you can expect. You'll often see a blip in seclusions if, if the kid needs them. Some kids don't ever need one. But uh, for the kids that do, there's often this blip during the early part of the hospitalization, and then they diminish. And we track outbursts. We track self-harming behaviors. We track sexually inappropriate behaviors. Uh, we use the MOAS, which I know has some, uh, is not your favorite tool, but it has some utility. Uh, and so we track that over time. Uh, to see how the kids' behaviors do. And for the most part, kids actually do remarkably better over the length of the time that they're there in regards to their aggression or their self-harm. Uh, we also, which is also unique somewhat now, unfortunately, we're able to do home passes so we can actually get the kids out and let them practice in the community. And so we gauge, because it's not enough that they can do well within our structure. They also have to do well once they return to the community. Mm -hmm. What I wish we had, which we need more of, is that when the kids leave, there's no systematic great way to follow up how they're doing in six months, a year, or two years. Then uh, we've been trying to work with the state. These are all kids who are funded by Medicaid. So there's a bunch of data around about whether or not they got rehospitalized, whether or not they went to the emergency room, whether or not they're arrested. Those are data that I'd like to have better access to. Uh, so I know that they do quite well while they're in our program. Uh, hopefully they do quite well in the years afterwards. Well, we used to be able, we, we didn't have a state hospital, but we had lengths of stay of one to, one to two months even. And what we used to be able to do was, in addition to the home visits, and we had a great nurse that used to go out and spend the afternoon, and, and, and the parents, many of them, I shouldn't say many of them, those parents that were resistant to the program and so forth were just so grateful to having somebody come and, and see what they had to deal with, you know, where, how they were living, where, show them how they could manage to do the program within the context of where they were living. So, I mean, just, just from the PR standpoint, it was just a great intervention. The other thing was, you know, it's kind of like the way it used to be at coronary care units, you know, when you have a heart attack, you're there with the monitors, there beeping away. And then if it looks like you're not going to die, they take the monitor off. And if that goes well, you go, you know, down to the step down place and they keep an eye on you another day or two. And then you're home in a, in a, an environment where you're not hopefully picking up cinder blocks. So you're, um, you know, we would try to do that with a the kid. They would be managing on the unit, then they would have 
passes out for a couple of hours and then four hours and then eight hours and then even an overnight and then an overnight where they got in the school bus the next day and that happened a couple of times and and you were able to you know work with the families on managing the kid the kid felt good about the way they were able to you know be successful and so forth so it worked unfortunately insurance companies said well if they can go out of the you know if they can be off the unit we don't have to pay for them they don't need to be in a hospital and the administration said, I, what the liabilities, are you kidding me? What happens if they get, get you know, hit by a bus while they're at home, you know, then we're liable for that. And, and you know, those are all, you know, those are all realities that we have to deal with, but they are the reasons that I think we're not able to do things that we know can work. Right, and, and at some level it's tragic to do, because hospitalizations cost a lot of money. So to spend all that resource and yet still not do everything that needs to be done to ensure the kid doesn't come back, it ends up being a waste that the kids keep cycling back through the system. I mean, and because we're sort of the last stopping place for kids, we consider that this is the time, this is the kid's chance and this is the family's chance. And if we don't take advantage of it now, uh, they may not get another chance. So I mentioned a couple of barriers just now that, that I think are um, get in the way. Um, you know, I, I, I have this bin theory of we, there are things that we know how to treat and we treat them. There are things that we really don't know how to treat and we need to do research with them. But there's a whole bunch of things in the middle where we know what to do, but there are things that keep us from doing it. And you and I had been talking offline about uh, what some of those things were. I, I mentioned policies, I mentioned insurance. Um, you had some thoughts about that that had to do with, in fact, our responsibility as, as clinicians. I mean, maybe it's better in your state. In the state of Washington, care is pretty disjointed, uh, that there's not a lot of continuity or coordination to care across the different settings. I mean, we talk about a system of care it really seems to be more just a bunch of little islands of care where kids sort of get plopped in one and then another, and there's no connection between the two, even if we try. So, I mean, we start some line of treatment, the kids working on, you know, some kind of CBT or doing their trauma narrative or whatever. And we talk about hoping that continues when they leave and it may or it may not. Uh, and so, so even the model of care, the approach, the goals, the language that you use, it's just different as the kids land. The diagnoses are different depending on which clinician's office you walk in. The meds always get changed. So it's, it, and for kids who are complicated enough that are at risk for falling out of the system anyway, the whole thing just exacerbates the problem. Uh, and, uh, and there are therapies that clearly work, contingency management therapies, behavior management, cognitive behavior therapies, but it's hard to get those treatments in the community. I mean, parent management treatment, you know, parent training stuff, which is really helpful for oppositional behaviors. It's, you know, finding a therapist to do that in a community is nearly impossible. Even in a place like Seattle, that is, you know, fairly endowed with therapists and resources. So um, anyway, I, I do think obviously there's more resources are needed, but at some level, it also may be the, how we design the resources, how we use them. We spend a lot of money on mental health and I don't know that we get the outcomes that we're, that we're spending on. So if you, uh, if you were president, if you, uh, if you ran the world, what would you do? I'd fix climate change. So. <laughs> well, yes, I, I think that would be great. It's uh, not raining. And, here and, anymore, and there's so. a couple of things, you know, after that, even that we might do. But but you're a professional child and adolescent psychiatrist. What would you do if there was a an agency of some sort that you oversaw, which, which I'm sure you have some input in Washington State? What would you do? 
I mean, the, the efforts that we have been making is to come up with something between us, uh, the, the acute inpatient units and outpatient care. There's just this enormous drop off. And so there's a lack of intensive outpatient beds or day treatment beds that we're also really lacking in sort of alternative placement settings. So that, you know, the kid's doing fine at the state hospital, but the drop off to just go home without a lot of services is enormous. So having some sort of transition planning or in-home services, preferably uh, where the kid can keep working on the same goals and the parents can keep getting support is really necessary. And those are expensive up front, but I don't know that it's any more expensive than having the kid keep getting readmitted. Yeah, they're not hospital again. No, I, I agree with you. I, I, in fact, I think this, again, the step-down approach does make sense. And, you know, go to a day treatment program um, or, you know, then on, on the way down, do the, you know, the wraparound or whatever. And then, so, yeah, I, I think one of the reasons that uh, to go from your inpatient unit, even a good person doing parent training, I mean, it's still a huge fall fall off the cliff that, that you do. I, I One of my neighbors, a, a younger woman, um, had a hip replacement. I don't know, she must be about 50. And um, she's in pretty good shape, but she needed her hip replacement. She was out of the hospital, Jack, in two days, mm -hmm. if that. But that occupational or the physical therapist, I, I don't know which one. I, but anyway, somebody is, was at her house every day and walking her. And then she was out the door and then she was down her driveway. And then she, and so we meet her sometimes when we take walks around the area that we live. And, she, you know, she's not going up and down hills yet. But they're really taking care of her every step of the way. And she's doing beautifully. Mm -hmm. She's doing beautifully. That's what we need in mental health. Yes. That is what we need in mental health. <laughs> okay. Now that we've got that fixed. <laughs> okay, we're done with that. Now what? Okay. <laughs> well, I think we're actually out of time. <laughs> so we're going to end on the high note of... Um, I think it's I think you can understand my bin theory. This is something where we actually know conceptually what to do. What we don't know how to do is get it and, uh, you know, get it into place. And so it does it will take a mixture of advocacy and um, improving the knowledge base in the community and financial resources and so forth. I do think it's going to require quite a coordinated effort, but it is doable. It is doable. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I expected I would enjoy talking to you, and I did. And um, thank, you. Fun, <laughs> thank you for getting up early to do this. And thank you for our audience for tuning in. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Thank you all very much for tuning in. This is Gay Carlson for ACAP's Screenside Chats. Screenside Chats is a member in public service, but it is neither a legal interpretation nor a statement of ACAP policy. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by ACAP. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their participation in Screenside Chats does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of ACAP or any of its officials.